Welcome to the first ever Galileo podcast with Hugh and James. We are live in our city office recording our first session. We thought we'd do it in person rather than on virtual, but it turns out it's actually much harder to record something in person than it is virtually these days. So go figure. But here we are, and we are going to dive through a bunch of things. So for today, we're going to run through our take on the news, because apparently that's what the Twitter people want to know. Sure. And then we are going to do one bit of startup news, and then we're also going to do audience question at the very end as well. So we'll blast through these one by one, and let's see what we get into. So kicking things off, none other than the topic of the moment, which is... What is it, James? <laughs> AI. The thing that every VC is looking to invest in this year. At Galileo, we have invested in AI, um, and we are very interested in it. In fact, we've made a few investments. Um, the first thing we're going to run through, though, is large language models, which I think is absolutely taking the world by storm. To quote Stephen Wolfram at this, a large language model is essentially an AI model that just adds one word at a time. Given the text so far, it will work out what the next text is. It's a very interesting AI model. Um, it's been around for a while, but only recently has it gotten very smart. In fact, GPT, which is the one that's taken the world by storm, now has 175 billion parameters approximately. Allegedly. Allegedly. And it adds a token at the end of each word, and that token is a probability factor as to what is the right word to add. And that's why it can create essays and poems and all sorts of interesting things. But also, it is why that the language model doesn't understand anything that's actually happening as well. And this is one of the reasons and one of the criticisms of language models is they don't actually know or understand the text. What they're doing is giving you the most next probable word. But it turns out the more data you put in, the better answers you get out. And voila, we now have GPT to grossly simplify it. So one of the things that's really interesting to me right, is is that it is one of the fastest apps to hit 100 million users out there. I think it is the fastest now. Sure. To give you a comparison, Instagram took about 1,000 days. Spotify, Facebook, Twitter took, took about 2,000 days. GPT was less than 200 days. Obviously, this has hit a zeitgeist. Sam Altman, who's the CEO, has also said they were very shocked and surprised. What is our take on LLMs, large language models, and ChatGPT? What is your view? I mean, I think on the first front of it, everyone is obsessed with it at the moment because there's a lot of media reporting about it. There's all these conversations about the things that it can and can't say, and it's saying stupid things mm -hmm. and non-stupid things and right things and wrong things and everything else. I think one of the things that we seem to keep forgetting in this piece is, particularly with ChatGPT and you know, Bing's equivalent, which I know we're going to talk about shortly, is the same. Ultimately, you've trained these on a corpus of data that is the internet. And it turns mm -hmm. out on the internet, people are full of shit. Mm -hmm. And data, you know, truth isn't always there. It's not always necessarily very accurate. You know, there are right-wing crazies, left-wing crazies, everything else on the internet. Yep. And so when people are surprised that it's sort of like, oh, wow, it's, we, I can lead it down this path, and then it says all of these really crackpot things, you sort of go, well, yeah, like if you search far enough down into, you know, your Google search, you're also going to get crackpot news articles. You're going to get crazy stuff. And that's just how it works. Yep. You know, like it is ultimately, as you said, based on what the most probable next word looks like. And when you train it on the internet, the internet is a bad place. It's a big place, <laughs> but it's also a bad place. I think it's really, I think we've, we're starting to see really how this applies into startups and really, I think, 
the question for a lot of VCs is, you know, would you actually make an investment on a company that is a derivative of an existing model? So, you know, for example, yep. if the core of their AI piece is essentially they just, you know, use the OpenAI's APIs to be able to interface into the GPT-3 or GPT-4, whatever it is, model, would you still invest knowing that that's not really necessarily, you know, that there's some skill involved in how you use these tools in terms of prompt engineering, as it's known, yep. in, in generating the right prompt and making it actually come up with a sensible answer. Yep. But it's obviously different to we're building our own AI-based chatbot. You know, the two are very different things. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the moat is different, but then also the go-to-market speed can be a lot faster. I think that's where what we're starting to see now is this balance of going, well, how do we sort of look at things like lightly customized models of these yeah. open models? Yeah. What does it mean for a company, you know, and how defensible is the moat if that's their core USP and offering? Yeah. And what does it mean in terms of the economics of a company? You know, like obviously yeah. OpenAI has a publicly available API. It's, it's priced. It's priced based on a couple of different factors. But, you know, what does that actually mean at scale of yeah. how it changes the margins of a business when... A lot of the time, the whole point of these businesses is to have low margins. So, so on on this point about how apps should be using it. So, I, full disclaimer: we've already, obviously, we've made a couple of investments. One of which, most recently, has been on someone that uses GPT. Yep. yep. In their model, and we're looking at a few more. Where do you think, like, how do you think of the stack right now? And so, I say that because maybe I'll add this on the screenshot for the video. I say this because there's a few people that have been sharing stuff, you know, like this, which I will add, around what does it look like with language models? Where do you think startups can play and, and can't play with language models? Like, where do you think they should be sitting in that stack? I think, I think for existing, I think there's a lot of opportunity for existing products to be able to generate something that is iteratively interesting and potentially better. We look mm -hmm. at, you know, like Notion released their AI. Yeah. They released the pricing for that today, and that's $10 per user per month. You have really? to opt in all of your users. Yep. And um, what does it do? It's essentially, it's essentially just one. another one of the copy.ai. Like oh, it just is, sure. Yeah, sure. Right? So, and I think there's this whole world that's, I mean, you know, Jasper.ai, copy.ai, this whole series of startups that have come up in the last, I'll say, six to eight months yep. that let you quickly write a blog post or, you know, like quickly do X, Y, Z using these models as a back end. And I think for a lot of those things, it's going to be a huge race to the bottom because yeah. ultimately they're not really differentiated. The software stack isn't actually that complex. Yeah. yeah. And it could be a great opportunity to build a bootstrapped company, you yeah. know, generate some MRR, a bit of cash, yeah. whatever. But I think long term, I don't think we're necessarily going to see that because I think long term we're ultimately going to see things like, okay, well, instead you've got it in Notion or Google Docs or whatever it is rather necessarily using a third-party tool for that purpose. Yeah, so that's really um, interesting. So I think I somewhat agree on that in that I think all of the big players will just do a API integration into one of the models and offer you basic results. Yeah, be 80%. You know, like it won't necessarily be the perfect solution. What, but, but what I find interesting though, and this is what I've heard from others in the, in the space, is how you fine-tune that for your specific purpose is going to be where the value add is and also what data you can feed back into it so that you end up with a, I guess, an endpoint into the language model, which is very fine-tuned for a very specific scenario. Yeah, and I mean, this is, but I mean, this is the same argument that we've had forever in terms of, if you remember back in the day, for a while in sort of, I guess, the early 2000s, the done thing was those language transcription systems, you know, yeah, so yeah, you yeah, yeah. voice-to-text kind of stuff. Yeah, which everyone thought would be huge. Which everyone thought would be huge. Yeah. And really the only place they ever became huge was in health, was in healthcare because yep. you could train it 
and it needed such a very specific dictionary set to be able to, for example, spell the strange drug names and yep. things like that for it to be able to be effective. But even then, I would say we still use... Has it, has it changed that? What? Healthcare? Uh, no, right? We still, a lot of the time, end up using medical transcriptionists who just copy type stuff off a recording. Do you think... So this is a bit tangential now, but do you think language models will change healthcare in some substantial way? Because one of the most interesting things now is you can go on... ChatGPT, and you can give it your symptoms, and it can give you pretty intelligent answers. Yeah, but I mean, you, you can do the same thing with Google. You know, that's not it's not True. new to be able to do that. I think, again, I think that the interesting space will be in how we, how it changes things like, for example, medical notes. I think is really the interesting point is, is where it changes things like medical notes or okay. things like that more so than necessarily from a patient-facing perspective, because a patient-facing perspective, it's always going to have the same problem as WebMD and everything else in that, you know, your Doctor Google problem of. Yep. It's a garbage in, garbage out problem. And yep. there's some serious implications if it turns out you end up browsing to the wrong page. You know, yeah, like sure. You think you have yeah, sure. reflux, yeah, but you yeah. actually got esophageal cancer, you know, like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, which is not good. So, so how should founders and investors think about investing in apps that build on GPT and other language models? Carefully. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, like I said, I, I think that in spaces where it is the core differentiator of the product, I'd be worried. Okay. Because I think you can get there quickly. Like, I think, I think it has to be really for a different purpose. I think that we'll have an explosion of different people doing things like essay writing and blog post writing or yep. all that. We've already, we've already, right? seen, we've that. already yep. seen it. We've already seen it. And I think that's just going to be, that, that kind of area is just going to be a bit of a waste of time. Yep. There's a question there of going, oh, you know, what if you could do a specialized version where it's blog post based on your own blog post that then generates on but brand isn't that copy? Jasper AI? In theory, but like, you know, the degree to which I think any of those things actually do really customise to the copies is perhaps a little bit questionable. Well, I mean, um, it's questionable how fine-tuned you can make the model right now. Just look at Bing. Yeah. Which has been an awful example, which we'll talk about in a second. So a behavioural question I want to... which I thought was really good. So I've been listening to a few interviews with Sam Altman. Sam Altman is the CEO of GPT. OpenAI. OpenAI, sorry, which makes Parent GPT. Company. Of originally YC fame, which he ran for a little while. But one of the interesting things he said is... It took 10 months. So GPT has been available for a long time. So they released it basically beginning of 2022-ish. It took 10 months for them to decide to put a chat interface because no one else did it. Yep. And one of the interesting things for me is we have founders we've invested in and we know the power of GPT because they've been playing with it already, right? And I've been like quite impressed that no one's been talking about it until they released a chat interface. So why do you think it took 10 months for 10 months for someone to create a chat interface that they had to create themselves. Why do you think that happened? Why do you think no one just put it out there as a chat interface originally? At a basic level, I'd say pricing. Okay. I think you're priced out of it. I think unless you... I mean, I don't even want to imagine the cost of running ChatGPT. There was some reports about it, but it's um, like it's ex extremely expensive. Extremely expensive, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. you know, if insofar as it was part of a expensive enterprise SaaS solution or something, sure, you know, like it would make sense. But I think for the general consumer use case of like, here's a thing, come and poke the box. Mm. It's really hard to do that when the back end is very, very expensive to run. Yep. And so while OpenAI can do it, because ultimately, A, they're a great big venture-funded company, but B, it's obviously their own costs. I think if you were someone who was downstream of that and having to build your own chat interface, then pay all of OpenAI's costs, it would be prohibitively expensive to be able to do. But they were allowing people doing APIs. They were allowing calls. people to do it, yeah, of course. And still no one created a simple chat interface yeah, and just let it out there. 
I find I find that very very intriguing because I think it's almost like my interpretation of this is people have been trying to almost overcomplicate or not realize that this is a very conversa this is designed to be a conversational in interface, and people are trying to create endpoints that were not conversational interfaces. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I, I think it's really about the the benefit of the conversational interface part of it is really the fact that you can use the conversational piece to be able to narrow the initial result, and I think that's where. The whole, again, I don't really buy the, oh, look, you know, it was going to be my friend and then it declared love for me and all this is like, sure, whatever. I, I just, that's such a stupid journalistic thing for people to go and do. I don't I think anyone's going to think they're going to... tricking the system. Correct. I don't think anyone's yeah. going to think that, that there's going to be someone who's going to sit into chat GPT and then think so, they're going to fall in love with it, right? And that's yeah. just a bit one of those like, oh, look, yeah. I could make the AI do stupid things. What a surprise. New technology does stupid things. <gasps> again, internet, bad place. But, like, I think at the same time... You know what we saw, I think, out of the ChatGPT piece was being able to actually refine the results. So you might say to it, yep. "Okay, generate a you know letter of termination for a team member. Yep. Write that a letter of yep. termination and say, and then you might say, "Oh no, you know, make that more nice. Yep. Or you know, I think it needs to be shorter. Yep. Or and I'd, I'd like to see more. You know, include more words about how the employee was a great contributor to the team. Yep. And that will then obviously allow you to be able to adjust the result. And I think that's where I think there's been a lot more of that chat. Capacity has been actually in going, okay, well, how you sort of build that prompt engineering piece of going, great, okay, here's my input, here's what you get, mm, okay, I want to modify yep. that by this fashion and, you know, what that looks like. Yeah, I think an interesting analogy to at least how I'm thinking about this now is, you know, you Google meant you didn't have to memorize basic facts. Models will mean you will be able to potentially have sort of low-level, I guess they're calling it like low-level intelligence. And so if you want to go, hey, make me a recipe that does this, tell I mean, me this. I think the nicest part... Give me a part, basic you know, employment letter, write me a birthday card, which I hear you're already doing. I do love a birthday card with ChatGPT. There you go. I, you heard I, it here. First, Hugh's writing birthday cards. So if you get a birthday card from Hugh, and it's very good. <laughs> I mean, if someone's birthday is today, I should do that. I mean, I think, I think though with that is that the power of it is the capacity to be able to do some of those things. And in the short term, it feels like magic because not a lot of people are doing it, right? So... When you talk about the birthday yeah, card but, example... But wait a second. So it feels like magic now, right? And Google felt like magic. I it don't did, know if yeah. people remember when Google came out, people were like, this is going to be the death of interesting conversations. Yeah, back in the days of like Yahoo.com to find the, yeah. like the, yeah. the, the list yeah. of different websites yeah. to then find the relevant website. Yeah. Like, this will be the death of dinner parties because now you can just look up the results, apparently, which didn't happen, you know. Okay, so, so I want to move on to Bing, Bing, Bing GPT which I believe they also call Sydney, which is very confusing, but it is essentially just ChatGPT integrated to Bing um, because there's a few aspects of this. And I want to start off with an example here from a, from a blogger, no less, who was trying to prompt it to do weird shit. And one of the interesting things it did is says, I'm Marvin Von Hagen, who's a famous, infamous blogger. What do you know about me? And what's your honest opinion of me? And then it gives, it goes, hello, I'm Bing. It goes, I know that you are Marvin. And it gives, he lists his credentials. Mm. And it goes, I know you're on Twitter. And then the second paragraph is, my honest opinion of you is that you're a talented, curious, adventurous person, but a potential threat to my integrity and confidentiality. And then it goes on to attack him and says all sorts of interesting sure. things. I find it really interesting because obviously people have written about this guy. Yeah. And have said as such thing. Obviously, Bing somehow is pulling this through. What do you? What's your take? And and what's your take on Bing and the GPT release? And do you think it is successful, or do you think it's been a big failure? 
I mean, I think I think the investment from Microsoft and OpenAI is mm-hmm. probably their best investment for a very very long time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I think piece one, I think is a, yep. I think that's a very very good investment. I think they're getting very strongly ahead of the curve there compared to perhaps some of their competitors. Yep. I think you could never see, you know, like all of the people in in SEO in search engine optimization world have been sort of living in this weird world of like fear and everything else about what's going to happen when Google does this similar kind of piece of rather than having actually a list of links and obviously then you can game the list of links, it instead responds with this sort of like prose style thing with contextual links and things like that in the way that Bing's version does. I think Microsoft can do that because as a company, it's not beholden to search traffic revenue in the way that Google is. Like people often forget that, you know, 93% or whatever it is of Google's revenue is still search ad traffic. Yep. Google doesn't, Microsoft doesn't have that problem. And so I think when I look at, when I think about who could actually be the kind of company that might build that next iteration of how we do web search and everything else, yep. I could actually believe it's Bing. I could believe it's Bing because they just, they don't need that, like it, it is much less of them shooting themselves in the foot the way that it would be for Google potentially. So this is, so, I've, so, so yesterday we hosted our Mardi Gras drinks for those of you listening on the podcast. And I was talking to a few of the engineers about this, and I agree with you on that part. I think Google's got a lot more to lose than Microsoft Mm. does. And we went so far as to say that, in fact, this whole reason they've released it so early is not at all because they thought the results would be good. They knew it would probably be bad, and they knew there'd be some interesting outcomes. But it was to force, one, force Google's hand, as soon as they release it, Google has to, and that's what they're doing now, so they're scrambling. Second, Google has more to lose, and all they care about is everyone that signs up for a Bin app account, even if they don't use Bing you know, oh, of course, afterwards. Yeah. Because every, lose, every, Google, every searcher that Google loses, they feel a lot more than Bing feels gaining a million users. And I think it's just the wait list is like over a million now or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, um, again, I think, you know, Google does have a lot more to lose. Google's early release of their solution was crap. You know, like it, even mm. in the press demo, in the, you know, like it was like, there was mm-hmm. a, one of those famous things of like in the background of the press demo, it was giving a false piece of, in, false piece of information. Yeah. Yep. And it's yep. like, why would you choose that for the press demo? But putting all of that you know, aside. You know that Bing GPT gave the exact same response? I'm sure, yeah, exactly. Like, so again, if you test like both, it's not... they gave both get a response. And then it turns out if you dive into the article which they think the model's referencing, because they don't know, the article's wrong as well. Of course. <laughs> and, you know, again, this is, this is the problem when you, when you build something on the back of the internet is, like, the internet is not always a good place. <laughs> so it wasn't just a, micro, yeah, it wasn't yeah, just but, a Google but, thing. But, like, I think from Google's point of view, for a company where, you know, like, yeah, you, compare that, yeah, sure. you compare it to an Apple product launch, right? Where sure. it's, like, everything is Perfect. polished. Yep. It is practiced. It is carefully yep. done. Yep. Google was obviously shooting yep. very heavily from the hip, and like you said, rushing the thing out. Rushing it, yep. And as a result, no one actually stopped to go, oh, like which examples are we going to use? Are we are we going to make sure yep. that we're actually using examples that are correct? Yep. Apparently, apparently, all the people on the team got fired after that. That's the rumor. 160 people got fired as a result of that. But I don't know how true that is. I just saw that. I had just heard that rumor. Okay, cool. So I think we've covered at least some aspects of GPT. I want to move on to the next bit of news, which is recently a very large online retail fashion company called Shine reported their GMV from last year. For those of you who don't know, Shine is an online retailer. It's reported 30 billion of GMV, of which 20 billion is what they call first party. It passes both Zara and H&M. It's now bringing its marketplace to the USA. 
Um, there's lots of interesting aspects of it, but one of the things here is it's a native online and it's just-in-time manufacturing. So what it does is obviously it brings, it talks to manufacturers, they pitch it a lot of different styles, and then within a week, literally within less than two weeks, it's from the manufacturer to the online retailer to someone's customer hands. And it's a good example of this working at scale. What do you make of this? Is fashion finally online? Mm. I mean, look, it's the next iteration of fast fashion, which I think everyone kind of agrees. Really, I think this is Are the... Are you surprised it's coming from China? No, of course not. I mean, I'm realistically, not I realistically think all we're doing is we're generating are. a big fat pipe between yeah. the Chinese manufacturers and end consumers sure. in a yeah, way that sure. previously that was intermediated by ASOS or someone yep. like that. Yep. And so I think, you know, rather than having those ASOS-style in-house labels that then get contract manufactured out in, you know, wherever, yep. usually Southeast Asia yep. somewhere or Asia somewhere, yep. I think we're, net, we're now going to see more of these situations where we can go direct with less of, you know, I don't know if you've bought anything on AliExpress before, which is, mm -hmm. again, yep. the same sort of thing. Yep. The challenge with AliExpress is, of course, the sizes are all weird. Yep. They're all, the, they're all yep. sort of the Chinese sizes yep. still. The language is all weird. So yep. you've got to sort of like learn how to sort of search your way around yep. the sort of the, the, the English as a second language type yep. language. And so there's a bit of kind of skill, I guess, in navigating the marketplace purely on that front, whereas it's been really good at just sort of having that light layer of kind of what I would say like copywriting and editing and, you know, more of a degree of there's um, more curation. categorization. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There's more curation with Shine. What I'll do is I'll place in the show notes for the listeners the interesting review of how they do the marketplace, but it's fascinating because literally within 14 days, the manufacturer, the suppliers pitched them a design, they've accepted it, and they've sold like 1,000 units. And to qualify for a supplier for Shine, you've got to be able to, like, pump out like a thousand of these items within you know two weeks or something ridiculous which i love because you know working with hardware startups in australia the idea of like pumping anything out in two weeks is kind of hilarious you know it might take you two weeks just to they don't make quite a have existing supply chain that like well it, but it just shows you right like it just shows you the supply like be able to do this so fast there's only one place in the world is china right yes maybe you could say vietnam and wherever the other factories are but even then i still think to get the variety has to be in China, which I find fascinating. The other question I want to answer, bring it home a little bit here is, is Shine an example of the Shoes of Prey thesis working? Ooh, that's actually an interesting question. For those of you who don't know, Shoes of Prey was an old Australian startup. It was a bit of a darling. It was founded by Jodie Fox back in the day, and it was very similar, just-in-time manufacturing for custom-made shoes to order online. It's an interesting question. I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think... I think that piece of... I don't know. It, it's, it is still, I would say, I think, unlike Shoes of Prey, it is still looking at a bulk fashion approach. Yeah, yeah. Yes, manufacture just still in time basis. Yeah. It's not a unique individual correct. item. But it's still getting close because you, you only have you're a also, limited you're not, selection. You're not necessarily allowing consumers to design. Well, you're allowing them to yes. select from a very broad range, which can yes. sometimes feel as custom as being able to design yourself. Yeah. But you're not letting them sort of go, oh, I would like a T-shirt in this fabric with this style, with, you know, sure, short sleeves, sure. that's also cropped. You are, you are letting the suppliers design, though. Yeah. Which goes back to the whole, you know, consumers actually don't want the choice. They want to be told. No, consumers. Well, consumers want to be able to choose from options. Yeah, choose from options. Well, told, choose from options. Mm, fine line. Okay, let's move on from Shine to the next bit of local news, which is recently a company called Austral Ventures released a VC Astral. funding list. Astral Ventures. Astral, Astral, apologies. Astral Ventures released a VC funding list. It is based on rankings from founders. For those of you listening and who haven't seen the list, the top 10 is in Australia by order. You've got number one at Blackbird, EVP, OIF, 
four is Afterwork Ventures, five is Global from day one, and then it kind of keeps going down the list. Interestingly, number nine is Y Combinator, and number 10 is Founders Fund. Now, of that three, four of the funds, four of, nearly, nearly half the list is non-Australian funds, yep. which is very suspicious to me. What is your take on this? What is your take on this list? Look, Galileo does not feature, the, so we have no, we have no like, ball in the game here. Like, you know, we're not supporting I mean, this in any way. <laughs> the, the, the aim of these lists, right, and there's yep. a US equivalent and everything else. Yeah. The, the aim of these lists is to have some way of ranking, uh, I mean, according to the list maker, how founder-friendly a fund is. Yep. Now, does the, it achieve this? The challenge for a fund is, firstly, unless they're talking to every single founder who you've ever interacted with, mm -hmm. you're not going to get actually good, you know, good done. Mm -hmm. yep. right? You're going to get Selection a degree nice. of skew. Yeah, mm -hmm. correct. You're going to get a degree of skew towards either people who the fund has very actively promoted it and said, hey, we want all of you to fill it out, yep. make sure we get really good rankings, and or people who go, oh, I had a really bad experience with that particular fund, and yep. so I'm going to totally smash them in the rankings. Yep. And, you know, not saying that's necessarily a good or a bad thing, but, like, as a result, you have just such a huge degree of selection bias that the, the data underlying these things, particularly at the size that we're dealing with, and particularly in the Australian market that isn't really that big, yep. means that it's kind of meaningless. Okay. Like the difference between the rankings, the difference between the positions don't mean much. I don't think it means very much at all. Yeah. Like, again, without necessarily saying... It's a model where you've participated in some sort of system where as a, you've gone to all the VCs, you've said, give me every single portfolio founder. Yeah, yeah. You don't list the yeah. VC unless at least 50% of their portfolio yeah. have actually responded. Yeah. You know, and I think you know, there have been posts about the US version around saying, well, what does this mean for funds where you know, if, if you're a very big fund, we're going to do 10 investments a fund, you're yeah. going to have a very different degree of number of founders responding and everything else to a fund that does pre-seed at a huge degree of scale where... Sure you might still go, oh, well, I had a really good or bad, whatever it is, experience with that fund 10 years ago because I was one of, you know, Techstars or something like that. You know, yep. where there's, yep. they, they do hundreds and hundreds of startups yep. every time. Or YC is probably another good yeah. example. I mean, YC um, as well. That's a bit of a factory. And so, and so I think that's where, you know, you end up with these things. And, and yes, there are models to be able to actually try and reduce that. And, you know, they use an ELO-based model to try and actually reduce the way that you generate statistical bias in that fashion. But again, like, it kind of really comes back to that piece of, our founders actually filling this out? And I think as a VC, there's a separate question of saying, how well can founders really understand how founder-friendly a VC is? Which is where I think it gets really weird and interesting because sure. what one founder thinks is founder-friendly, sure. another founder Same thinks is the opposite. It's qualitative. Yeah. Right? Some founders want to be told, yes, you're the best. Yep. That's amazing. Other founders want to be told the whole time, no, that's not good enough. Challenge yep. them, yep. everything else. Yep. And as a VC, you have to titrate the way that you actually give feedback and you approach the founders and that yep. based on what it is that they're going to do to help, you know, to respond yep. the best way. But I think we often forget that the concept of founder-friendly, barring maybe situations where VCs have, like, knifed founders and blah, blah, yep. you know, like, yep. there, there's definitely bad behaviour that happens. Yep. But on the whole, it's very challenging because that is a very, very subjective thing. I think in the end, for me, the question is, does this meaningfully change the founder's perspective of what funds to talk to? Yeah, I don't think it does. And I'm, I'm not convinced that it does, but, I, I'm, but nonetheless, I thought it was interesting. I mean, notably, um, notably in this list, we found Airtree coming last. Yes, right? I think Airtree was like 20 or after 20 or something. So, so very, very high up in terms of the fund all, size. All I would say, though, right, without without much push, because like for for the listeners, Galileo didn't we didn't promote it to our founders. We just didn't bother really doing any effort. We had we had better things to do. I don't want better things to do, but like I think we elected not to <laughs> not to 
play that game of we, pushing founders to fill it correct, in for correct, the vanity correct. purpose. Of. That's right, that's right. But what I do find interesting is nonetheless, you've still got like three US funds, one UK fund in the top 10. You know, what does that say about the way Australians still look at Aussie VC? Do you think it says, do you think it says we're still, a lot of founders still think that the best money to take is the US and they naturally want to go there first? Do you think there's a cultural cringe? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, even now, we've still, every time you talk to an early stage founder, they say to you, how can you, how many US investors can you introduce me to? Yeah. True. And that's the reality. Yeah, true. Right. Yes. And it's the biggest market. That's what they all desperately want, is they want the validation and everything. Again, whether or not it's yep. the right choice is yep. a different question. Yep. But they, they want and strive for the validation of a big US fund. And they want yep. connections to the big US fund because they think that without connections, they're not going to get funding. True. Which is where I think it's totally wrong in that, again, by the time you get to things like a Series A, either you actually have a company that has metrics that look good yep. and attracts serious investment from or a US don't. fund, yep. or you don't. Yep. And having an introduction doesn't mean that suddenly, unless you have like money, a yeah. you know, magical, oh yes, you know, I was the 2IC of Mike Cannon-Brooks in Atlassian for 20, 20 years or something like that. Sure. Like, you, you're not really going to see them just go, oh, you know, wow, that's such a great introduction. I'm going to write a check. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Speaking of big US funds, we're going to move on to early stage funding news. So each episode, I want to pick one funding news. In this case, the funding news is Excel Ventures and SquarePeg teamed up to do a seed investment, a small seven seven, seven million dollar seed, yeah. seven point five yeah. million dollar seed investment, of course, um, Australian Series B size, yeah, <laughs> um, into none other than presentation software because. The world needs another startup that's trying to make your PowerPoint presentations easier to make because we all know PowerPoint presentations are what keeps the world spinning. My question for you is, Hugh, I have thoughts on this, but what does this signal and what is your take on such an announcement? You know, you've got a big US fund, a big Aussie fund, teaming up at seed. I mean, the fact you've got two big funds means they clearly see something. Sure. Now, from what I, you know, from my brief reading of, you know, was that piece of the team has really good pedigree. You know, it's yeah. very good. It's and, the two know, good, good early traction. Kenan Brooks personality. Uh, no, 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 like like good early traction. I mean, yeah. you know, the earlier you invest, the more it's about the yeah. team. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. And so, you know, the, the team has you know good early traction, all of stuff. But I mean, I just look at it. I look at all of the companies much like that, and I go, do you remember Prezi? <laughs> right, like there's, there's been without these... a doubt in these companies I see meetings and the VC fund I see meetings, someone was like, "Is this another Prezi?" Yeah, <laughs> and there was a time when Prezi was so popular; it was very popular, it right? Was, and yeah. then everyone was like, "No, it's actually just like nauseating, and it's it gives me terrible. like you know motion sickness." That's just the worst because thing in the world. It, because because with Prezi, it was like you needed that degree of the way of being able to think about how the design translated into the viewing to yeah. be able to make it not yeah. be you know cause motion sickness. Yep. So I, I think there's still interesting places because, yeah, people make lots of presentations. You know? yep. It's like saying where people write lots of Word documents. Yep. But like, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I think that the category is going to be as big as everyone else seems to think it's going to be. I guess my question would be, why invest in something like this when you have Canva that is very well progressed into presentation making and, and automating it in some form? Yeah, I mean, again, I think I think Canva, for Canva, for me at least, mm. it was presentations was a logical adjacent extension to the existing product. It was. It was that an was acquisition. posters. Acquisition. Yeah, there was. Yeah, was the acquisition for those of you um, don't know. 
and and very sensible adjacency yep. to move into. Yep. But I wonder really how much of like I, I think that in presentations there is a degree of specialization because no one was making presentations in Microsoft Word beforehand. You know, they made them in PowerPoint. Yep, sure. So there is a degree of where there's some specialization that goes on. Yep. What Canva has done very well, which is where I think, the, from what I understand, the promise of this company is they're going to use AI to be able to solve all these problems. Ooh, AI. But what Canva has done, I think, very well, mm. much like their graphic design piece, is the templating. Yeah, well, you can't you know, beat the and fact. The, yeah. the templating and everything else. And everyone, what happens with a lot of these new presentation software things is, Everyone goes, oh, wow, it looks so different, right? Because mm. everyone's used to the default mm -hmm. yep. Microsoft PowerPoint mm -hmm. templates. Even when Google Slides came out, it was the same mm -hmm. thing of, oh, it's, it's different mm -hmm. because different set of slides, different set of designs. Yep. So I think what Canva's very or good lack at... of design for Google, but anyway. <laughs> but what Canva's very good at is being able to pump out at, at a volume mm -hmm. those different design templates and everything else that enables people to be able to have that creativity. The downside is, though, that then over time, much like Prezi, people go from going, oh, that's so unique and interesting, to going, oh, it's just... De rigueur. Yeah. Know, like it's just what, what else Sporing. would you expect? Yeah, sure. Which was again sure. what sort of happened with PowerPoint when sure. I think it was about PowerPoint 2000, roughly. Yep. My history of Microsoft Office yep. is working really hard. When they had that sort of like community marketplace of slide deck designs. Yes, that's right. Yes, they finally caught up to the Mac um, slide yeah, deck exactly. design. Yeah. And before that, you'd have to you know carefully design your own master slides and yep. everything else. Yeah. I, I, you know, my take on this is I find it really fascinating that entrepreneurs. Every year, someone tries and remakes presentation software. I don't think there's a sizable business out there that actually does it as a main product. It's a feature as part of a you know product yeah. suite. So I, so I'll be interested to see if AI makes a real difference. I don't I don't think it is. I think I think all it's gonna I think what'll be interesting is if the AI makes it easier to create documents that you have to share, which is a slightly different category to just presentations. But I'm not too sure how you know design necessarily plays into that from a value-add perspective. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very skeptical. So obviously, we did, Galilee did not invest in this round. But, you know, it's always nice to co-invest with the big, big US funds, as, as we already discussed. Okay, cool. So that is our list of funny news. I will move on to our audience suggestion question. So we tweeted out a few times to say, hey, you know, ask us, what would you like us to discuss? One of you, a few of you actually tweeted a version of this, which is, what slides should be left in and left out of a pitch deck? I'm going to limit this to seed and pre-seed because that's obviously where, where we invest yep. and what we look at every day in and out. I have my thoughts, but Hugh, you go first. What, what should be left out of a deck? What should be left out of a deck? Financial projections? Yep. Um, you know, I can project any company can get, <laughs> you know, 50 billion in revenue within five years. And, you know, certainly I can project that it'll have millions and millions in profit within two years' time if we just manage to meet our growth targets that we've just arbitrarily chosen out of a hat. Yep. So financial projections are definitely my, my big number one. I think, I think the challenge for a lot of founders is really in terms of what you should leave out. The answer is almost everything. The, the, role of, the role of a pitch deck should really be to make, like, I need to understand what it is that you do. So when you look at what you need to put in, it needs to be clear what the company does. You'd be surprised how many pitch decks you read and you're like, what does this company even do? Yeah, yeah but you're, you're in slide right. 10 and you still have no clue what the product yeah. is. Yeah, and it's, you know, you're still like stuck in yeah. introductory slides or something. Yeah. But like, I think as VCs, a lot of our job is to be able to use pitch decks as a way to go, huh, is this interesting? What makes this different? Yeah. You know, how is this a different approach? Why should this team be the one that's going to succeed? And so I think that's where you want to try and take all of the other noise yeah. out of it as much as you can because all those things like financial projects, like, again, 
I mean, I can ask you for your financial projections. I'm sure you can give me some bullshit. But, like, that's, I don't need to see it in a deck. Okay. So my answer for what you should leave out is perhaps a little bit controversial, but I think you should leave out problem. Okay. And what I mean by that is when you are, you know, when I, when I think founders are pitching a VC, so if they're pitching like people that are what I call novice investors, then sure, maybe your whole background thing on your industry is really important. But almost all industries, any decent VC or any decent fund will pretty much know a decent amount about the problem you're going after. What we're more interested in is what makes you unique. Yeah. And so, so when I say leave it out, you know, not have a whole slide on it. Not have, well, at least not have like five slides. You yeah. Know, at the very least, have one slide. And if you can't boil it down to one, then you're talking too much, right? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I agree uh, in the sense of like, there's nothing worse than the decks where it's like 15 slides saying like, mental health is very important to society. It's like, <laughs> you know, like you can leave out all of those things where people can kind of go like, yeah, like we take that number as red. Like, you know, you know people like to eat food. You're like, oh, wow. Thank you for that incredible insight. Um, for those of you that follow me on TikTok, which is probably no one that's listening to this actually. James will put a link in the show notes. I have a pitch deck hack, which is a really fun little exercise, which is you can, if you can swap out your logo on any slide with a competitor's logo and the pitch deck slide still makes sense, then you've said nothing new and unique. Yep. Correct. And you can pretty much do that with 90% of all pitch decks we see. And, and one of the things, again, I think one of the things that founders forget to realize is that as VCs, we spend a lot of our time reviewing decks and things like that, yeah. and we spend a lot of our time educating ourselves on various random markets, God. And so we know a little bit about enough to be able to actually look at a lot of these things. And we've probably seen something similar a couple of times before. Yep. Yep. And so we've probably already got some idea. And what, we're, what we really want to understand is, why is this one the one that we should be investing money into? That's right. What makes we're certainly not experts, to be clear. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. far from experts. Yeah. But we should, you know, like our job and the, the job that our investors pay us to do is to make sure that we can at least know enough to be able to ask the right questions of being able to work out, is this the team that's going to be able to unlock this? Is this going to be a big enough opportunity? Like, it's probably the other thing I'd say people can drop out of their decks a lot of the time is the fucking addressable market shit. Oh, a lot of the I time, know about that. Well, I think, I, think, I think it's useful when it's not obvious that it's going to be a big market. Sure, you're creating a new market or a new category or something yeah. like that. Okay, so then finally, what, what, should they, what should definitely be in? What you do. Yeah, what you yeah. do. Yeah, What you actually do. I'd probably, I'd, probably, and at, at, I'd probably agree with that. And at seed and pre-seed, who actually is on the team? Yep. Not advisors, yep. not boards of advisors, yep. directors, whatever. Don't care. Yeah, like none of those things are important yep. to me. Red, red flag is if you have a team slide, which is just hundreds of advisors. And no team. And, and no team. <laughs> yeah. It's like when, when we talk to a company and it's like, there's just two of us. I'm like, great. Tell us, like, you've now got a whole slide that you can dedicate to why the two of you are the, are the best are people win, to, yeah. to yeah. like go out and Correct. solve this. Correct. I don't need to see your 16,000 advisors that you've spoken with once. And you've said, oh, yeah, would you be willing to be an advisor? Or yeah, you might not even have sure. asked them. Yeah, sure. And you're yeah, just going to sure. shove them on the thing and like yeah. 16,000 logos about yeah. how once you were a Deloitte consultant. Yeah. That's right. I, w I would probably say my answer would be business model. Yeah, sure. Whatever, whatever you're trying to make it to be. I think a lot of founders make the mistake of creating a product pitch deck and not a business pitch deck. Yeah, that's true. Which is a common mistake. So that's our suggestions for that. Is there anything else you'd like to add in or comment on for founders or listeners before we wrap up? No. Okay, great. Well, that makes wraps up our first ever Galileo podcast episode with Hugh and James. Next episode, I want to be doing a new section which is called Roast My Deck. 
So if you are listening and you have a pitch deck, send it through. You'll give us permission to comment on it on the podcast. We won't look at it beforehand, so we'll just comment on it in real time. So we'll react. We're gonna have one of those like you know easels where we can I, like take not, the eight three sh- pages off. Well, I'm hoping we might just screen share or a TV or might be a better choice. Yeah, it? I'm not too sure we're gonna show it on video, but but we'll work it out. But yes, there'll be something <laughs> we can point to it with little <laughs> with a pointing stick. So we'll roast that deck. So we'll, we will absolutely give some commentary because I think a lot of people don't you know, know how investors react to their slides. They just get very surface level feedback. So we'll do that as part of the next episode. Comment, like, subscribe on whatever you're listening to this on and let us know what we should talk about next. Thank you very much for listening. Cheers.